This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krauss, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer, educator, clinician, podcast host, as well as managing editor for Modern Drummer Magazine, Mike Dawson. Many of us are familiar with Mike's work with Mike Johnston on the Modern Drummer podcast with Mike and Mike. Uh, Mike Dawson just started a new podcast called The Modern Drummer Podcast, as uh, he and Mike Johnston have concluded the other podcast. So this is going to be a new, fresh approach that's going to be more interview-based and global in scope. In addition to all this, Mike also serves as the book editor for Modern Drummer Publications. When playing live was more of a regular thing, Mike stayed as busy as he wanted and was often a sub for the drum set chair in the Broadway musical The Lion King. If you're interested in finding out more about this episode and all of the over 250 episodes that we've done here at Working Drummer Podcast, you can find us at workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Stitcher, iTunes, where you can subscribe to us. You can also follow us and subscribe to us on Spotify. Check us out there. If Patreon isn't your thing, then we have a PayPal option on our website. You can go there and make a one-time donation. We appreciate everyone's help over the years in keeping this podcast going strong. Here's my co-host, Zach Albetta, tearing it up with a 7x15 buyer snare drum. As we wrap up our ad campaign for Buyer Snare Drums, I want to give a big thank you to James Buyer and his generous support of this podcast. Be sure to click on the link in the show notes and visit his website to find out more about Buyer Snare Drums. As I mentioned in our conversation, I was real excited about meeting Mike in person this summer for the Music City Drum Show that we were planning And for obvious reasons, it was rescheduled for 2021, and hopefully we can still make that live clinic happen with Mike Dawson and Near Z. As you probably already know, at least from my introduction, Mike is extremely busy. Even during this weird time, Mike continues to stay very busy. So my utmost appreciation for him to take some time to speak with me as is the case so often with these open discussion type podcasts. I have a plan, I have an outline of what I think we're going to talk about, and they typically go a completely different direction, and this episode is uh, certainly no exception. A couple big takeaways for me is how humble Mike is and what a student of the instrument he continues to be, even in spite of all his success and activities in the industry. I can only guess that the team at Modern Drummer are super happy to have someone like Mike Dawson on their team. But again, I want to thank Mike so much for his time, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mike Dawson. First of all, I can't thank you enough. It seemed like you are constantly busy. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's It's been... <laughs> 
just my life. I mean, <laughs> I don't know any other way. Yeah. I don't know how to relax. I mean, I'm, I'm a chill person, but I don't know how to relax, if that makes any sense. I'm the exact same way. Yeah. I think when everything hit in March and gigs were canceled and tours were canceled, it was almost an excuse for me not to feel guilty about taking a breath. Mm-hmm. That is true. I've been, you know, I've been allowing myself to slip a bit on purpose, like just be kind to myself. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're similar because I'm not the type of person to like sit back and watch a bunch of TV or something every day, every once in a while, but I want to be productive. There was an interview you did, it might have been The Unstarving Musician, and you talked about like, I get up early and I hit the drums like at between 7.30 and 9 in the morning. Yep, yep. And that's not a real common thing for people that are wired uh, as musicians. They tend to be night owls, you know, but... Y- yes, I don't I don't like that cop-out because it just, it, it just breathes laziness. It just does. If you don't get started until 11 a.m., you've lost so much opportunity to get things done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I think that's probably my, because my dad was in the military he didn't raise us in any kind of military way but just that ethic of get up and do the most difficult thing you need to do for the day just get up and do it yeah otherwise you're going to be sitting around all day hating yourself because you didn't do that one stupid thing (laughs) yeah it's really interesting and there was an article i wish i could remember i think it was the drummer for weezer i read uh probably about six years ago and he was talking about be careful when you slip into this is somewhat related, but be careful when you slip into this, like, Oh, I need caffeine to get going and then Mm. I need to come down. And so I'm going to grab alcohol or whatever your drug of choice is to kind of bring myself down. And then you don't sleep well. And then you compensate with caffeine the next day and you get into this back and forth. And like when you're in your twenties, you might be able to do that and function and perform, but it's not sustainable. No, you know what? My something about my body chemistry, caffeine. I could I could drink a gallon of it. Doesn't matter. I like it. I enjoy it. But oftentimes, I have a cup of coffee and take a nap. Like <laughs> I have no trouble sleeping. I think that's one blessing for me. I could lay down on the floor right now and fall asleep in five minutes. That would not be a problem. <laughs> and it's not that I'm tired all the time. It's just when I'm up, I'm up. When I'm down, I'm down. Yeah, that's uh, the way my body functions. Good for you, man. Good for you. It's (laughs) it's, it's the demons in my brain that keep keep me awake at night and trying to figure out the right uh, combination of tea or lighting and everything like that. Keep keep myself from uh, using something uh, more dangerous, you know, which is so easy. I do want to... say thanks to J.C. Clifford for um, the connection to you that, I mean, I guess in a roundabout way, I would have gotten to you uh, in one way or another. I've known about you for a long time, but J.C. was instrumental in getting the ball rolling into the Music City drum show we were going to do. Yes, man. I was real, that was a, it was a, We've been doing more and more live things with the podcast, and this was going to be a a big step forward for us. Uh, we're doing a live master. We were developing a live master class. We had a chance to do that once before March, and this thing was going to be 
just something for Zach and I to really focus on uh, bridging the gap between the podcast that we do and the live audience and, and this this whole thing. And you were going to be a part of that. Uh, I think Neil Z was going to be a part of that. And yeah, yeah. Not all is lost. We're just hitting a big pause on that. Has there been anything that you had in the works that had to kind of fall into this category of pause? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I mean, everything. Um, I mean, aside, I mean, my, my, my day job at Modern Drummer is still motoring ahead full steam. We're, you know, we're work, all working remotely now, which for me has been a blessing because I, I'm, you know, I'm feet away from my studio. So I don't have to like drive home to do recordings for work or drive to the office to do writing. I can just get it all done at once. Um, I function a lot better in that sort of an environment. I know some people need a place to go to, but yeah, for me, just being able to wake up, do what I need to do in the morning for myself, then just start working like organically throughout the day, whether it's a recording thing I need to do for a product review or writing or interviewing or, you know, and then I can still just walk my dog at lunch every day. So oh, yeah, that has been a blessing just to have that ability to keep working. Um, but as a drummer, everything is, is, is kaput. I mean, I was subbing on Broadway once a week or more that's done. And for the foreseeable future, um, Obviously, every live gig I've had is I've had two gigs I've been able to manage to squeeze in this since since March 21st. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were it was nice to play, but they were obviously less than ideal with social distancing and the crowd had to be 20 percent and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, everything, uh, even even just, you know, the experimental stuff that I was doing in my studio for my own well-being is on pause because now my wife is working from home and my drum set is in the studio right below her office. So you know, there's been a lot of concessions just because we're both in the same small house 24 hours a day, basically. Um, so, but I'm still able to do a lot of recording for people. I've, I've, that's been one blessing is everyone's homes so everyone's making music. Yeah. Um, I've done, I want to say seven albums since quarantine started. Holy um, cow, man. Most of it's for, you know, like advertising agencies and stuff, but you know, some independent songwriter projects, some mm-hmm. more experimental stuff, um, all, all independent projects, but you know, I'm able to crank them out nights, weekends. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of been a mix of like, I got into the routine of, of playing on Broadway and keeping that sharp that's all done. Um, I don't know if I'll ever go back, honestly, because that's probably shut down until summer of next year. Was that um, subbing for Carter McLean? Yes. Okay. Yep, yep. Which is an amazing experience. Um, super intense. I was very grateful that he was willing to trust me with that seat. Um, most intense gig I've ever done in my life. Still, I, it, it never got easy. In what way? Um, there's just so much pressure in that type of an environment where everyone knows you're a sub that's in everyone in the orchestra knows you're a sub and, and is listening for you to mess up essentially. At least that's what I think. Um, you know, so you're dealing with that extra pressure of show up, no rehearsal, sound exactly like the original, you know, sound exactly like Carter. So no one questions anything. 
and get out there alive. And the show is just super intense. I mean, it's right. a lot of drumming. By the end of the bow, by the end of the bowels, my hands are are spent. Like it's as intense as like a punk rock show for me. It's just so much like tribal toms and you're driving a 20 piece orchestra with dancers on stage. So, and it's just mentally, just the focus of it. Again, there's no rehearsal. So you just got to show up, do whatever you need to do, get into the zone from, from the first note and just blaze through for two and a half hours. Yeah. Uh, in, I think in another interview that you did, you mentioned that sometimes there's different directors yeah, different conductors. Um, Sorry, conductors, yeah. Yeah, there's one, you know, the main conductor, then there's the main assistant conductor, then three or four substitute conductors under that. So, I, you know, you get comfortable with the, how the two main ones work, but mm-hmm. then there's there's a couple of conductors that I've only played with a handful of times in two years. So you got to remember, like, which one pauses a little bit longer between sections? Wow. Which one likes to push the tempo? Which one likes to pull back? You know, there's which one just has a tendency to do certain things, speeding up in the middle of a song or not, you know, like all this stuff. And if you're not on top of it, you're done. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> you know, My like you're, gosh. You're going you're gonna to get rid of the, you know, the right actor intermission or whatever. Yeah. If you... So, it's, you know, it's it's super intense. I mean, the, the main conductor I worked with a lot, so I, I knew his, you know, his idiosyncrasies. And then the main, the secondary conductor she's just rock solid. So when I know when she's there, just play the show. You don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. So is that, that you know, dynamic of when the, when the main conductor's there, you've got to have your eyes glued to him because he's going to make, he's going to make sure you're watching at some point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you <know? Wow. laughs> so, you know, again, it's an amazing gig. Uh, everyone asks me, is it fun? I'm like, I wouldn't, fun isn't the word I would say. It's, <laughs> it's exhilarating. <laughs> It's it, akin to like like jumping off a bridge or something, you know, like like base base jumping or something, right? It's and it's it, fun it, during <laughs> during the moment. It may not be the most you know it's so intense, but but by the time you're done with it, probably the feeling afterwards. Yeah, yeah. The walk back to the bus station is like, all right, I nailed it. Or you start, you know, that those demons you're replaying all the stupid mistakes that you made. Yeah, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect show in my mind. So it, oh. no matter what, there's or something that you're like, dang it, how did I miss that one thing? Or one cue I was like half a second late. Or mm-hmm. the egg shaker, I couldn't get it solid in the first measure. You know, like all that stuff starts replaying in your brain. The torture, the self-loathe. <laughs> you, you saw some of the other pit musicians exchanging money when you missed a, a cue. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Damn it. <laughs> what I, I mean, what I realize is most people don't care. It's like if the conductor, the front of house engineer, and the bass player are cool, then everything's cool. Right. That's what I kind of learned. You know, the, the violin, they don't give a crap, you know. Yeah. They're just playing the gig and going home. It's a really weird balance, the psychology of doing what we do, and um, especially if you take it seriously, and this is what you do for a living, and, um, you know, I, I envy certain musicians that just don't seem to care but always seem to do well. I'm middle age now so i think i've i've gone over the the precipice of really caring too much um mm-hmm. to where now i know no one's perfect and i know the less i put anxiety on the mistakes the less anyone else is going to put anxiety on the mistakes the yeah. more i can have a good time with it the less people are going to because ultimately 
no one cares. Like really, if you really think about it, no one else cares about what you're doing because they're doing having the same battle with themselves. Yeah. So I think more of like, like I did a gig with one of my favorite bands around here and the bass player and I, we have a super awesome hookup. He's, he inspires me and I might push him in certain ways. He started to tune the last gig. I was hearing him the, that downbeat in the wrong spot and I just started playing it backwards and it, and it didn't even realize it until he was like one. I was like, Oh, that's the end of four. <laughs> so I just flipped it and we just started laughing. I'm like, you know what? That, that just happens. No yeah. one heard it except for the two of us. <laughs> yeah. Know? It didn't matter. Normally I would have like, Oh, he's going to fire me. Or we're never going to play again. Or I got, I can't believe I did that. I'm the worst. I should quit. All that, all that stuff is now it's just like, that's just funny. That's just stuff happens. He didn't care. I mm-hmm. didn't really care because we got, we had to laugh about it. Yeah. Um, so I'm getting to that point in my life where it's, I know I can play. I know I can get the job done. Right, I know right. I'm going to put in the required effort to be at a level that I I would expect anyone else to be at a level. So then, if something happens, something happens. If it's not a catastrophe, then then who cares? That's right, kind right. of where I'm getting at. Because we had fun. It's still entertainment. <laughs> you know? I'm not like opening someone's chest up and repairing arteries here. <laughs> <laughs> where if I make a mistake, you know, someone dies no one dies i had a very similar situation i was working with a band last weekend and we were just doing one six eight song after another and they called a song and i tried to just catch the tempo from memory and i was way off and they they literally <laughs> had to turn around and stop this and, and the guitar player's like whoa too fast and i was like oh my god what am i thinking i mean that just so <laughs> rarely happens and what i learned from that experience is like these people trust me uh, like you say, you know, they don't really care. They kind of had a, la- we had a laugh about it. And I was going over my mind after the gig thinking, what should I say? You know, like I'm, you know, guys, I'm so sorry. Like there's no excuse, but really I think that people just, they just don't, they don't really care. Like they don't even want to hear an excuse or an apology or whatever. They're like, it's fine. You know, just like, don't make up excuses. Don't, complain don't whine stay positive because that's one of the key components in making yourself employable is not only your performance ability i mean those things are so obvious but also just kind of your ability to roll with things even your own personal mistakes your own uh insecurities and stuff like that and not be a burden yeah you got to get over it because who wants to be around someone that's a drag i think more importantly who wants to be around that person like all night you're going to talk about that one thing you messed up like dude wah, come wah. On, where's that music for debbie downer right? <laughs> yeah, like come on man we got bigger things to you know where's the catering that's the <laughs> most important thing <laughs> yeah and this is interesting because i i wonder about with with your job as managing editor at modern drummer you've been doing it for what a little over 15 years now 16 and a half. 16 and a half. Wow. Yep. If, your, if your career could drive, if it's <laughs> licensed already. Um, so you are like in this community of and, and have connections with all these amazing drummers and interact with them on a regular basis, more yeah. so than just about anybody. And I kind of wonder if 
my experience in moving to Nashville 20 years ago and being a small fish in an incredibly huge pond of insane talent seemed overwhelming and yet at the same time gave me a sense of peace, knowing that, well, this is who I am and this is what I do. I'm not going to be Greg Morrow or Chad Cromwell. I'm going to be me. And Mm -hmm. this is, I'm going to get hired or not hired because of who I am. Mm-hmm. And um, and learning from these people, and I wonder kind of if that helps you in your creativity, in your ability to perform and grow as a musician, being surrounded by these different drummers. Or have, have you ever yeah. put much thought into? Yeah, that? I mean, a hundred percent every day. It's it's like a blessing. I mean, literally. Anytime you see my byline on an interview for Modern Drummer, you can guarantee that I took that as a free private lesson. (laughs) Yeah. Like I was going to ask that person everything that I would want to know if I was going to pay them a couple hundred bucks and take a lesson. (laughs) So, so I'm going straight for the goods. I'm not messing around with, you know, you know, what'd you do when you're five years old? I don't care about that. I want you Mm -hmm. to tell me how to do the things that you do great so I can start to do those things. Yeah. Um, so that has been it's that has kind of put my perspective on greatness. Like I kind of get the reality of it a little bit more, and and there's no I don't see that like some people just aren't great. Some people are naturally great like that. There's no there's no gray area anymore. It's are you doing the work and are you focusing on the right things? That's what it takes. And then there's some raw talent. So learning that we like. There's really not much that separates me on a base level from my favorite drummers. It's just they either had the right guidance early on, if they were had more focus on certain things, the important stuff, like can you play quarter notes in time, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, or, you know, some of them are freak talents, and that's been okay too. Like I know Vinny Cayuta is just a freak talent. It's okay. Like yeah. I'm not trying to be that. He's been a freak since he was a kid. So Tony Royster, been a freak since he's a kid. Ronald Brunner Jr. These guys were just gifted at an early age and fostered at a very early age. I'm letting them have it. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. You can, you can have it. Right. No one's going to be calling me for, you know, burn and fusion gigs. That's totally cool. So there's been those both sides of it. I know I now don't, I no longer say you either have you have the gift or you don't mm-hmm. at the same time, I'm willing to accept that there's always going to be the anomalies that are just exceptionally gifted and that's okay. Like I'm not comparing myself to anyone anymore. It's just, what do I need to do to get to that level? What do I need to do to play with the precision of near Z or Shannon Forrest? Mm-hmm. What do I need to do to have the feel and pocket of Steve Jordan? What do I need to do to have the creativity and like sense of, of, composition as Matt Chamberlain and Glenn Kochi. Mm-hmm. It's all attainable. Right. You just have to like focus on it. Right. And, and carve that time out and that consistency. Yeah. Put in the time. You can't wish for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta work hard. I mean, it's been probably a dozen years at this point when I, after I realized I couldn't play a quarter note in time. So I went back to like day one, Alfred method, drum book one, play these things with a metronome and anytime there's any ounce of a flam stop and start over. Like I, I deconstructed myself to the very beginning 
And it took 10 years for like, okay, I can play to a click now. Like for real, I can play to a click now. Right. Uh, And it, it feels like music in other words. Yeah. I have control over it now Mm -hmm. before I I was always chasing it, which may be insecure, which made my plane sound amateurish. Mm -hmm. I wasn't dealing with the core problem, which was like, I didn't have a good internal sense of pulse. Mm. Once I attacked that, it all was like, Oh, this is why the greats sound great. Mm-hmm. This is it. Mm-hmm. Ultimately. Yeah. They're so confident in their, in their inner pulse that they can't mess up. Right. Right. It, it, and that's I, just time. I love it. It's you're that's drawing inspiration <laughs> from these great. Yeah. Things. Yeah. From each one. I mean, Nearzy has been a, a great friend and mentor since I met him because I was, I'm just it, to hear that guy play. I've talked about this before, but he, I took a track to his studio one time and had him produce me. <laughs> wow. So I played on his drums in his studio. He recorded me and then he did a take of the same song. Mm-hmm. I mean, night and day, his track sounded mixed, polished, perfect. Mine sounded crappy. Mm-hmm. So from that day on, I'm like, all right, well, what is, what is he doing? Yeah. <laughs> like why? Why did he do it so much better right away? His bass drum sounded lower and deeper when he played it. So that sent me down a path of just exploring touch and precision and confidence and balance, all of that. Mm -hmm. And then same thing with Shannon Forrest. I was in his studio helping him set up his brand new recording custom kit at the time. So I got to tune his drums and hear him play them straight out of the box. They sounded like a record. Yeah. Like, how is it that he got that sound right away? Yeah. Steve Jordan, same thing. When I interviewed him, I was there. I was playing piano while he was playing drums during the photo shoot. I was just listening to him play this kit that just sounded so good. I went over and hit it, and it sounded terrible. (laughs) Yeah, the snare drum, like, cranked, like, so high. (laughs) So being able to, like, it's been such a, a gift to be able to be in a room with these legends and like, can you play that instrument for me? I want to hear what you're doing in this room with no microphones, no magic, just what do you sound like on that instrument? Yeah. And then what do I sound like on that same instrument? Right. It was humbling, but at the same time I kind of like realized, well, it's still just, it's still just a drum set. You know, it's not like he has special gear, (laughs) you know, Steve's kit was just a Yamaha club custom kit. Shannon's kit was just the Yamaha recording custom kit. Nears was a, a GMS Ash kit. There was nothing special about it. Mm-hmm. It was just the way they hit it. It was just their sound. So, I, you know, all that stuff is what I've, I've learned. So it's kind of this two-headed beast. They're great. They have a special gift. But I also realized that that gift is attainable by any mere mortal with the right effort and focus. Yeah. And you meant, you mentioned, like, I'm... I'm middle-aged and you think, you know, when you get to a point in life, your ability to progress in certain skills, the theory is that it plateaus. What's your theory on that? I don't think, okay, that's a good question because I'm kind of up against this right now. Um, I don't think your ability to learn and grow and evolve ever plateaus. Your interest might plateau um, and your, your curiosity might plateau. Uh, you may become p- complacent with what you can already do and not having a desire to do anything more, but I don't think your 
your ability to grow and evolve, there's it's there's endless potential. I do think physically your body has a threshold that it will only do things so fast, so accurately, so loud, so quiet, which is based on, unfortunately, our nervous system. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, because I've hit a plateau with my single stroke roll and I've been working on it for years. My technique is fine. It's just my my fast twitchy muscles aren't going to go any faster. They just aren't. Yeah. So I've had to just come to you know to that realization. Carter McLean's single stroke roll is always going to be faster than mine. I cannot <laughs> practice enough to make my single stroke roll catch his. So there's always going to be that one tune in Lion King when my hands feel like they're going to explode and he can play it completely effortlessly. <laughs> That's just the way it goes. And it's I think that's similar to if you're any athlete, a professional athlete, a major league baseball pitcher. No amount of practice is going to get you to a 99-mile-an-hour fastball. That's just physiology that they can throw that sucker like a rocket. Mm-hmm. Same thing with basketball. I mean, yes, you can train to jump high, but you can, you'll never be able to touch the top of the backboard unless you have a physical gift. You know, like there's certain things. And then in drumming, it's the same thing, like to play super fast or like like near Z's level precision or Shannon Forrest level precision. There's a certain threshold there that some of our nervous systems aren't ever going to get there. Mm-hmm. And we just have to kind of, I don't think most of us ever reach that or even come close to it. But I mean, it's, I've been working on it every day for years and I've gotten to the point where like, I cannot get that extra little bit. I just can't do it. What areas of performing, though, is attainable? Like, you know, you talk about speed, but I mean, is there another aspect that's necessary to sound as pro as possible? I think touch. There's there's no there's no threshold for touch. It's not like some people can get a beautiful sound and some people can't. I think everyone can can develop smoother dynamic and more accurate control and consistency of sound production. Yeah. Which is just listening, using your ears instead of just hitting the drums and whatever comes out, comes out. Um, I did have a, a strange phenomenon where my ears, like when I was a kid practicing drums, it was my body was leading the way. Like whatever my body could do, I would play. My ears would catch up. Mm-hmm. That inverted about a dozen years ago when all of a sudden I was hearing things that my body couldn't do. And that was such a better experience because then I could train my body to play what my ears were hearing. Um, so, for instance, snare drum sound. Um, I, I feel like I'm able with my touch to get the sound that I want out of any drum with minimal tuning changes or muffling or whatever. Just by the touch, just adapting my touch. If the drum needs to be hit harder or lighter digging in, letting the stick rebound more, faster acceleration, softer stroke. Like my hand just naturally adapts now. Yeah. To just produce this the snare drum sound that I'm hearing in my head. That what I think of the ideal backbeat sound. So yeah. that's just that just come over time. I don't think you could ever teach that. Right. Experience. Uh, uh, that being said, uh, one thing I wanted to bring up with you was I had an uh, opportunity to interview Jimmy Paxson, uh, a few, oh, right, Jimmy. Jimmy Paxson Jr. Um, 
a few months ago, and he was talking about his father's teaching and hand technique and how yep. just kind of unique it was. And he goes, I just thought it was just the, the greatest thing. And I was at a gig, I went to see a show and Mike Dawson was playing drums and I was, I'd never met him, but I looked at his hands and I said, I bet you a million bucks he took lessons from my father. <laughs> that was Atlantic City? Yeah, you're right. I think he was at Atlantic City with Deborah Harry. I, I think so. He was playing like the big room and I was playing the, the bar. <laughs> so, so they were i guess they were done with their show and they just came down to the bar and i was up there you know playing top 40 covers or whatever yeah yeah his dad um his dad was something else hard to describe he had the perfect mix of 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 unrelenting art artistic you know aesthetic and also just amazing technique and also um, an ability to relate on a like a youthful level with a college student. It was really pretty special. It sounds like uh, it. Yeah. And Jimmy's great too, both of them. Yeah. His, yeah. It, I didn't actually take lessons with Jimmy, but he was the coach for one of my ensembles. Okay. So he was in our ear like every week. Like, like it was always like, what are you guys doing? Why are you doing that? You know, like he would, he would kind of, you know, don't stop BSing, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Like, right. What are you guys doing? Why aren't you playing every night? Why are you waiting till rehearsal to figure this stuff out? You know, like all that kind of stuff. Those personalities, man, I, I have a trombone uh, teacher in college that was like that, that, you know, he was, he was a ensemble leader, you know, obviously not my drum teacher, but I think that I came away as a better drummer from my interaction with him and his no BS attitude mm -hmm. and his love of music. Yeah. I think we, we, we often underestimate how much a high school or college kid wants to be guided in that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's, there's a lot of, at least the way things are presented now, a lot of like coddling, which, which doesn't really like, there's a fine line between being abusive and then just being realistic. Like, like you're just not there yet. Like, can we, can we just, uh, you know, can we address the fact that you can't plan time? You know, I never had a teacher like, but just flat out say, Hey man, everything sounds great, but you just can't play in time. No one did it. I had one ensemble director. So this was senior year of high school. I was an all state jazz band, drum set player, first chair, hot shot in the whole state of Maryland. <laughs> and this conductor threw a metronome at me. And he said, put that on, have it click on two and four and start the chart. Oy. I mean, talk about deflating. It ruined. I mean, that was like the worst way to do that, in my opinion, because it just destroyed me. I had no interest in being in the, in the ensemble anymore. <laughs> um, but if he had pulled me aside and been like, hey, man, everything sounds good, but you really need to focus on the quarter note. So during lunch break or whatever, can you play through these charts with the metronome? If we would have done that. Yeah it would have been a much better, but he just, he literally threw it at me in the middle of rehearsal, turn it on and kick off the band on two and four, like have the metronome click on two and four, which I'd never done before. Mm -hmm. And it just ruined it. But he was the only person. So here I am 18 years old, first chair in the state of Maryland for, as a high school student. First time someone said, Hey man, your time sucks. <laughs> you know, the first time. Right. 
And it, it took, took me like 10 years after that to finally admit that he was right. Well, I mean, it's like that stuff, you're doing a student a disservice by not like steering them to like fix mistakes and do better. And, you know, I, I believe that a key component of being a good teacher is to be inspirational. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but, and not, yeah, to, yeah. not to coddle. You know, and it's difficult. I don't teach a whole lot. I teach a little bit, and I, you know, it, it's a. I, I really hats off to those that are passionate about teaching and put out um, amazing students with that that love the continue to love the instrument and do well from it. I, I don't know how they do it. Um, and you're teaching as well. I mean, have you, you're yeah. teaching at the School of the Arts in, in Philly. Yeah, I teach um, you know drum set lessons there. I have two freshmen, two sophomores, and then I also teach privately. They range from I have a middle school student up to attorneys and yeah, like not professional but like advanced amateurs. Um, yeah, and it's it's the same thing. Like I, I'm not a cheerleader, and and I think a lot of times the best teachers can be cheerleaders and mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have that, so I I kind of attract a certain type of student who's more inner driven like I am to where I can just cut to the chase. Like, what do you want to learn how to do? I want to tell you the clearest path that I know how to get there. Mm-hmm. And there's not going to be any fluff. You know, I'm not going to, you know, we're not here to have a good time. It's like, what do you want to achieve? And then let me figure, help you figure out how to get there. <laughs> yeah. and, the, and the gratification should be a month from now. You're like, Holy crap, I'm getting there. Yeah. I had a student about two years ago that was an attorney and, uh, you know, he just like had songwriter hangs at his house and just wanted to learn how to play this cajon that his girlfriend had bought him and understand rhythm. He had just no experience in music. And we'd spend the hour, the first maybe 40 minutes just catching up and talking mm. and shooting the shit for, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and then we talk music a little bit and then he'd be like, that was fun, man. And pay me. And I was like, what am I doing? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's fine. Whatever he needs to, to get, get the satisfaction for that's again, the older I get, the more I feel like it's not all me. It's if I'm doing what I need to do to deliver the information that is expected of me, then I'm doing my job. But when I'm teaching college students, that's a whole different thing. Right, right. You're investing a ton of money to be prepared to be on a professional level in four years. That's Mm -hmm. a tall order. Mm -hmm. We don't have a whole lot of time to screw around. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely let the students guide a lot of the focus, but I'm still always going to, like, case in point, I had a student yesterday. She wanted to figure out this 1916 Dream Theater figure. She can't play the part yet, but she can understand that it's in 1916. So mm-hmm. it's like, all right, then our lesson this entire week is going to be, I'm going to turn this pattern into hand exercises. So it's, you know, accents and rebounds in 1916. Yeah. So she's reinforcing this pattern. It's inspired by something that she really wanted to learn, but I'm still making her work on what she needs to work on, which is the fundamentals of technique and timing and independence. So that's kind of how I structure it. It's like, what do you want to learn? Let me get you there, but you can't, there's no skipping ahead. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can't be a freshman in college and playing dream theater. It's just chances are you're not there yet, but I'll, you know, I'll guide you closer within this semester and, and you and you're you're finding out something about what inspires her as a vehicle to get to what you know is important 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, it, it'd be silly for me to be continuing to talk about the importance of Sanford Moeller and George Lawrence Stone, and even Joe Morello at this point, because mm-hmm. I mean, I'm three generations removed from that and I'm in my forties. So it doesn't, you know, I don't see that as being the right path. It's more like, what are you into? What do you want to be able to do? I know, I mean, there's fundamentals of technique and independence and, and phrasing that just pervade everything. So, you know, what style of music are you into? Cool. You still need to be able to play with a good sound and a nice relaxed stroke, no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. So then we just kind of shape it. That's, that's, you know, I have another student who's he's a gospel drummer, plays in church every week. So we're analyzing videos of some of his mentors and taking, you know, deconstructing the licks into little bits that then he can apply at his level. Mm-hmm. So it's just this back and forth. For me, teaching is it's a delicate dance of keeping keeping the student super inspired, but also reminding them that they don't know nearly enough as they might think they do, or where they just, there's a long way to go. I'm always kind of the reality of that is important. Yeah. Like there's a long way to go before you're at that level. Um, but it's achievable. You just can't skip it. You can't skip steps. And I'm, and I'm sure there's opportunities for you to like, to grow. Like when a student brings something new, you're like, Oh, this is going to be interesting. This is going to be fun. And Oh yeah. This lick, I, this gospel lick I learned. Holy smokes, man. It is <laughs> killer that's awesome and once i figured it out i'm like man and it's not as hard as i thought it was like oh, it, cool. it kind of demystified the whole you know gospel chop concept mm-hmm. in a way i was like oh it's a it's a six note sticking the last two notes are doubles but the bass drum starts it like it just i once i kind of figured it out i'm like this is slick <laughs> and he was excited he was super stoked because he was trying to figure it out but was doing it like with a, a whole lot of doubles and it was just a mess yeah, it's like now it's super simple. Slow it down to the so. Yeah, that happens every week. Um, I have another student who wants to learn Indian rhythms on drum set. Oh, cool! Which I'd studied in college, but I haven't touched in fifteen years. So we're to give you know, he and I are both relearning. I'm relearning it, and he's learning it together. I just have more of a perspective of having done it once before. I just can't remember how to do it <laughs> now, <laughs> which is fine. And I think also showing. Your student that, that no teacher knows everything is important, too. Our snare drum feature of the week is the Buyer 4x15, performed by Nashville session player Mark Beckett. Touches everything. This, your sound is the only thing that matters. Mm-hmm. But the other fundamentals of, of accuracy and and pulse. If I had figured that out when I was a teenager, I don't know where I would be now. Honestly, mm-hmm. I really don't. Because I know that's what made me sound like pretty good for for a kid. That's what made, what made me sound good for a student. That what made me a a good college student. At no at, at those stages did someone say, "Dang, he's a good drummer." It was, yeah, he's good for being so young or he's good for, mm-hmm. you know, he's good high school. He's the best at this college, you mm-hmm. know, but when I played with like the real cats in town, I was like, yeah, you're just not there yet, bro. <laughs> you're just not there yet. <laughs> bass players, you know, I got humbled by bass players all the time and not, not directly 
it was just the the obvious lack of of excitement that came out of them you know like oh he you know i could tell he's struggling were you in new york or were you, were you in maryland doing gigs this would have been a combination of pittsburgh when i was in college uh-huh um, again i was like the hot shit guy in the, at the school but when i went out into the real world and tried to play with real players it was like oh man you can't swing <laughs> um and then after college i went back to maryland to gig a bunch and i started playing with like i mean if you know gary granger the bass player he played with dennis chambers for decades oh my gosh and one of my all-time favorite bass players on earth and i got a chance to play with him a handful of times and each time i could tell he was just like oh my god you're on the gig you know, oh. it just had that vibe mm-hmm. that and he never he was he was sweet he was kind but you yeah. can just tell you know yeah. at the end of the gig when they just pack up and leave you're like oh cool all right <laughs> <laughs> so that you know if someone would have pulled me aside when i was 13 and said this is the really important stuff all that other stuff you're doing is cool here's the really important stuff can right. you play along with a freddie king record for the next week can yes. you play along with a booker t record for the next week uh-huh I just never did that stuff. I was just like going like technique, you know, how fast can I play? How, how advanced can I play? Mm-hmm. I want to learn everything. Left foot clave in high school, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Right. I just, I'm just curious cause sometimes regional, like it, it's really interesting how people, you know, learn about their abilities or learn about, uh, connecting with pro players and, um, you know, if you're in New York or if you're like in Nashville, you know, there's a, oh, bless your heart, you're doing a good job. But really, they mm-hmm. don't want to ever play with you again. You just never know it. Um, there's the L.A. thing. There's the New York thing. There's, you know, there's just all that stuff I find really fascinating. You know, D.C. is a pretty heavy groove scene. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, there was always just that, like, I'm not there yet. I can tell. You can just tell. Well, you're just not there yet. No one has to say anything because, you know, everyone's still going to play the gig. Everyone's going to play the wedding. Everyone's going to take the bar gig. But you know when when it's not really gelling. Yeah. <laughs> just the overall vibe of everyone. Yeah. Like, oh, man, it's just not there yet. In, in Nashville, people just, they just, you just don't get called again. You know, they, they, they're never going to say. Mm-hmm. I was interested. I, 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 did a session last year and the engineer slash producer was on a gig a couple weeks ago. I said, Hey man, what, whatever happened to that? Like that demo stuff or thing I did that. And he was like, um, uh, Oh yeah. They, uh, they're going to retrack it. I was like, Oh cool. Nice. And uh, he goes, yeah, sorry, man. I said, no, 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 no. Totally cool. Dude. I got my uh, social media pics from that awesome studio so no worries but he, i could you know tell that. he was a little uncomfortable telling me that they were going to retrack it they were going to use the the band that they had on that that i was involved in and i'm like that's i get that i'm not going to be in the same town with near z and say what do you mean you're not going to use my track but, yeah no i yeah that's a that's again there's so many factors that probably went into that decision that weren't about you you know, like, but I just this wanted happened to him. me recently. Like, I, I, I had a a, yeah. a song that I recorded a couple years ago, and we were tracked it here in Jersey with full band, and and I could tell that the artist something was not right psychologically. He was just not vibing. Mm-hmm. So we did like a hundred takes. The takes were all good. Like, I'm not, I'm not just saying. I mean, we were fine. The band was solid, and then you know, 
a year later, he's like, ah, oh, man, I realized that the key was just too high. I'm like, ah. like you put us through all that torture for like four hours mm-hmm. and you were uncomfortable. So you weren't listening to the band. Mm. Whereas we should have just said, what's going on, man? Is something not right? Cause we're definitely nailing this. <laughs> like I should have spoken up a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, he ended up retracking with a whole new band because it was in the wrong key, and that's fine. In the version I, I just did overdubs on percussion the other day, I don't think it has the magic that we had in the original take, but he couldn't, if he couldn't sing it right, he couldn't sing it right. And, and you're making it art, and it's someone else's vision, and it's really interesting. I mean, I, I think I posted something a few weeks ago. I was like, well, this is what I played because, you know, we're doing – a lot of us are doing remote tracking, and you're not in the room with, with the person saying, you know what? That's, that's not what I'm thinking. Can you switch it to this, or can we try something else? You're not in the real time, so – Sometimes I'll put way too much time in a track and send it, and they're like, oh, no, 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 that's not what they're thinking. They want it this, and you're like, oh, my gosh. So now I'm, mm. I'm like, doing, like, one or two passes, sending a rough mix. Is it, am, I, am I in the ballpark before I spend a lot of time? Um, but because you, it, it's, it's you when you're thinking the way you think, your conception of the music uh, for whatever you know, however you, you, you perceive it, it's not always necessarily what the writer is, is conceiving of. No. Yeah. That's, that's another ego thing that, that I, that I've had to learn to shed. And I think most of us do it's again, it's not about us. It's just something. Yes. It's okay for, for them to refuse my first pass. It's okay. It's it, I shouldn't feel like, well, this was never going to be a workout or they're a pain in the ass or it's just, Try something different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't really matter. And that, you know, I think if when, when you can record with a full band in the studio, which is so rare in most places anymore, I think you get to that magic faster. Yeah. But when everything is overdubs, you know, the writer might not have really had the song fully formed in their mind yet. You know, where I've like, there's been a couple of times when I've had, you know, my own bands where, the drum parts that I thought were great, no one was really digging. A month later, they finally realized that the, the drum part I originally had was probably the best choice. So, you know, but it, but we abandoned it months ago. Like, it's, it's okay, you know? Like, I'm having to just say it's okay for them to not like it. It doesn't mean they won't hire me anymore. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just It's more about the intent. If the intent is there, we'll find what it needs to be. But then there's always, you know, for me, I know... I don't work with a ton of people and almost everyone I work with is former bandmates or in some way we've been like working musicians together. So I don't get hired from hotshot anything. That's not really my, my scene, but But, there's, you know, I know there's the, there's the writers that I know no matter what I do, they're going to change something. No matter mm -hmm. what I do, they're going to grid it. Oh my God. No matter what I do, they're going to sample replace it. So I'm okay with that. But then there's other artists that I know, they want me to do what I do. They want me to keep it raw. They want me to try stuff. They want me to make mistakes. They don't want me to overwork it. You know, there's, there's both sides of it. So I know going in this artist, I need to just play what needs to be played because they're going to chop it up and edit it anyway. And that's okay. I'm okay with it. Right. Whereas this other artist, they're like, just do whatever you want. And usually the first take is what ends up being what they wanted. That's cool. Right. And understanding that, the different styles of music and different personalities and what they expect from you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's definitely yeah. an aesthetic. If it's a, if it's a pop country artist, 
unfortunately, there's not much room for creativity in that. It's mm-hmm. play the part, and it's going to get sample replaced because everything has to sound like everything else. It's just it's just the genre, right? Where if it's this experimental indie rock that I've been doing, yeah, he has like certain certain parameters. It needs to sound like um, like um, Phil Spector, so minimal miking, uh, old Ludwig's. Beyond that, go crazy. Sweet. That sounds you know, like a that's blast. kind of the direction, yeah. Which yeah. has been super fun because once I get the, the the aesthetic of it, then the notes are all mine. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. the aesthetic is there that I get to make the the parts. I just need you to line up all the snare and kick drum hits on the grid. That'd be great. No, <laughs> can you imagine that? <laughs> no, this guy would have killed me if I would have sent him a grid out for. <laughs> It's like it's like finding out that Bruce Springsteen was singing to tracks. You're like, what the? F- <laughs> <laughs> How awful would that be? How did we ever get there? Yeah. Um, I don't want to gloss over any of the super important things that you're doing, but I mean, I, I I I love what we've covered so far, and I don't feel like we need to waste a lot of time. Um, but I do want to mention um, a couple. I'd love to just open the community up to the other podcast discussions and percussion. They did a great interview with you. Mm -hmm. Um, the unstarving musician was a really cool, relaxed, uh, interview that, that talks more about, um, some things that you're doing and stuff like that. Uh, as managing editor for modern drummer, I, I don't think it's necessary for us to go a lot into your responsibilities, but I did want to ask you about the Neil Pert issue and it, mm-hmm. can you speak to anything uh, about putting that out, producing that? I mean, everybody knows I'm such a huge Neil Peart fan. Just he was just such a big inspiration to to pursue music uh, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, that and and for, for, I'm I'm older than you, and like my experience with Modern Drummer was like seeing like one of I think his, his him on the cover in like 1981 or 86 or something like that mm-hmm. and being like uh okay I have to have this magazine forever <laughs> I mean this is no joke if Neil Peart hadn't have existed Modern Drummer would have existed mm, his no. is, his issues I mean he's been on the cover like nine times yeah have sold 10 times more than anybody else's issue in the, in the history of the magazine. That's amazing. It's, it's insane. And so, uh, you know, we, we caught some slack. Well, why do you always put Neil Peart on the cover? It's like, cause that's what our readers want. You have to, you have to service your, your, your readers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a certain special spot for Neil Peart in, in the history of modern drummer. They kind of just, they arrived kind of parallel, you know, modern drummer, 1977 and rush really came to the four 79, 80 or whatever. Um, so that progress, you know, every time Neil Peart's on the cover, a bump in sales, everything would kind of grow and then do it again a couple of years later, bump in sales, everything would grow. This is all from, you know, what I've been told. Cause I have only, I've been at modern drummer 16 years, but, you know, that was starting in 2004. Um, but this latest issue was really bittersweet because we knew that he was sick probably mm-hmm. two years before he passed. Um, we just, obviously, everyone was sworn to secrecy about it. Yeah. Um, so we had already started producing this issue 18 months ahead of time. Oh, my gosh. Um, most of the stories were written a year before he passed, if not more. 
so we kind of were able to normalize it, <laughs> you know, like it wasn't like a shock, like, oh my gosh, he passed, everyone has to scramble. And yeah, we kind of were able to just prepare on a, at a comfortable pace. Like we know eventually we're going to have to put this issue out, which kind of made it special. Um, because truth be told, I'm was never like a major rush fan. I went through a phase when Presto came out. That was a huge record for me. Mm-hmm. And then um, Roll the Bones was another one, and then Counterparts. Those three records were like the ones that that hit me at the right time as a teenager. Yeah. But I never really went through like I never saw Rush or anything like that. Um, so having this time, this like two year preparatory cycle of really just kind of investigating the music more was really kind of special because I had to check all the transcriptions and we were researching the drum kits to make sure they were accurate, all that stuff the whole time. Um, and the same thing with some of my colleagues, like it was a chance for us to finally figure out why everybody likes rush so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was kind of, it was bittersweet in that way. I never met Neil, never saw him play. But I feel like a little bit of my entire career is owed to him. And then having this this time period to work on this tribute issue, we also have a book that just came out that, co- that collects all of his cover stories plus some new stuff all in one. It was pretty special. Like There's no part of me that would ever say, I don't get it. I don't know why people like Neil Peart so much. I totally get it. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, so then I can put on the music and then enjoy it in a different way um for me it's more i'm still like i'm still discovering which is crazy to think <laughs> no yeah <laughs> I put on the record i'm like wow i really never paid it i never really listened to 2112 you know like mm-hmm. i never really listened to it yeah and then i did listen to it i'm like oh i can see why this would be really important for a lot of people especially in the time and the space, you know, when a lot of these things happen, you're like, okay, what was going on when this Hendrix record came out and why is it so important? Yeah. I mean, Presto for me, I was nine. That was the year I got a drum set when that came out. And I didn't know Rush was a legendary band. I was just watching MTV and show don't tell came on and the drums sounded freaking amazing. Yeah, So I bought the tape. And I'm like, this. I don't know what's up with this guy. This guy looks like he could be my uncle, but <laughs> he is killing the drums. Yeah. So I, I went through a phase, just completely self-discovery. I didn't have anyone tell me, like, you got to listen to Rush, you got to listen to Neil Peart. It was just that record. Yeah. And then the subsequent two records, it was like, okay, this, this, is, this is the era of Neil for me. And then I got heavy into jazz and everything kind of just pivoted to a different, mm-hmm. different aesthetic. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was unquestionable. When Show Don't Tell came out on MTV, I was a super fan of that drummer, whoever that was. Right, right. Yeah. I think that's how I discovered Matt Chamberlain was that same way, like MTV, and just seeing him with Pearl Jam and being like, I don't know what's happening here, but I love this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and he was in that Edie Brickell video, and I like never forgot it. He was the first drummer I saw playing like traditional grip and kind of slinky. Right. Right. Yeah, it was so yeah. important. <laughs> yes. I'm like, I can put my hair in a ponytail and look cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I never got there yet. I'm oh, getting there, uh, though. This this quarantine hair is getting me there. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, yeah. Um, 
the other the other thing I want to cover real quick is the podcast. Um, so there's the explain to me. I think most people know it's like drumming music podcasts aren't always top on my list. I've got comedy and uh-huh. politics and all these other things and I produce a freaking podcast so uh, there's oftentimes I discover all these other music podcasts like why I did not know that and there's so many great drumming podcasts from drum history and and, yeah, and so yeah. many great and I, I love everyone's kind of approach and flavor and like the the Mike and Mike podcast it, I've, you guys yeah. are introducing it's it's the two of you. It is an inter- so much an interview based, but I mean you've got product reviews and all these things that we don't do. So I love it mm-hmm. that there's that there's that. Is there an there another podcast? I mean, I'm seeing like the Modern Drummer podcast, the Modern Drum podcast. Yes, with Mike I and should. Mike. I'd never really addressed this, but the the Mike and Mike show came to a conclusion after 250 episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a goal that Mike and I set in the very beginning. Like we were joking, like, can you imagine if we made it 250 episodes? We never thought we would have gotten to that point. Um, so when we kind of were getting to there, you know, this year, things were getting difficult scheduling wise with his business and, you know, with me, with, with London drummer. And then, you know, once COVID hit and that screwed up everything, we both were like, okay, I think maybe the universe is telling us we need to, we need to wrap it up. Um, so we did. Uh, we wrapped it up at 250. There's no, you know, Mike and I are still good friends. The whole thing started because he and I would just have conversations every week about the nerdiest stuff. <laughs> he was like, "Why don't we just record this and put it out as a podcast?" That's just how the show started. Yeah, and we kept, we kept, we were very, um, you know, very precious about it. That's how it always had to be. We wanted to keep it just two friends talking shop, using Modern Drummer magazine as the impetus for conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and, and we could potentially do something again in the future, but we decided two fifty. Let's let's just call it a day. Um, so then, as a result, Modern Drummer um, wanted to keep going. So we, we've we've just created a new show. It's an interview show. Yeah. With um, you know, I'll be interviewing some artists, other members of our of our staff, and and um, freelance team will be interviewing artists there'll be some product stuff. So it's a, it's a pivot to a slightly different, more, um, global approach. Yeah. Rather than just Mike and I just talking for an hour every week. Um, so yeah, we have a new show. We're just two episodes in, it's still growing. We're still developing it. It's all via podcast one, which is a new endeavor. Um, so that's, that's what happened. So yeah. the Mike and Mike show ended at two fifty. the modern drummer podcast kicked off two weeks ago. Gotcha. Well, if you need any advice, I'm here for you. No, I'm <laughs> I really enjoy. I I enjoy like you guys have this really very relaxed interaction, and um, I I think the thing that makes Mike Johnson so appealing to so many people as students is that it's not that he's self-deprecating; it's that he's just realistic and he has an excitement. Uh, like a like like you were you're talking about sometimes you at a certain age maybe your interest wanes and when i was mm-hmm. a kid 
reading my, when I get my new issue of Modern Drummer, I'd start going through it and I'd get halfway through it. And I'm like, I have to play. I have to play. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I get that from Mike as well. And I, mm-hmm. I just, I really enjoy listening to you guys and the, just the very relaxed thing. And it's just, it's a reminder of what I, you know, it's like, okay, that's what I want to be more like. That's what I want our podcast to be. I want I want it to inspire people to to get excited about drums, no matter what station in life they're at. You yeah, know? And, I mean that's that's the whole point. That was the whole point for us. Like we we're still curious, so we're just sharing our discoveries and our fallacies. And <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I know it's so just, cool. It's so fun. It's uh, uh, that's exact. And uh, I'm not blowing smoke. What I'm saying is that. It it sound it sounds real and it 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 just makes me feel happy about like oh yeah that's right drumming and you know all those things. Yeah, yeah. I had to thank Mike for reminding me that he he you know because I tend to get a little dark and he it, it was a it's a good <laughs> it's a good yin and yang you know because yeah, yeah I would have to pop his balloon every once in a while and he would have to remind me that life isn't that serious you know like it was just this constant. You know, big. Who's the big brother? Who's the little brother this week? Kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'd have to talk him down. He'd have to talk me down. It was just this. So that was the whole point of it, and you know, just to keep it fun and, and remind people that it's not that important, and nobody knows everything. Just have fun. Mm-hmm. Stay curious. For yep. me, using drums more and more have become a vehicle for mental health than anything else. Like all the other stuff that I thought drumming was. It's kind of BS. It's really about mental health. <laughs> so much so. Ultimately, we... I mean, for me, for the bandmates, for the audience members, for my students, you know, it's, if I don't get on my drums for a few days, I'm not a happy person. No, my family knows that about me too. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, that's that's such a great takeaway. Uh, I want to ask one last thing and let you go. Uh, there's so much involved in your life that uh, is circles around drums from from just all day long, all week long. Yeah. Where do you go to just take a break from it all? Is there anything that you do to feel like I need some balance? That's a that's a a question I get asked a lot and um, <laughs> the answer is I just sit still if I need to take a break most times or I go for a walk. I mean, I, I'm very careful not to, to create another obsession in my life. <laughs> so I'm not going to take up golf. I'm not going to do the things that stereotypical middle-aged men do. I'm not going to work on cars uh, because my obsession is drums and art and music and that's enough. So yeah, if I feel like I need to take a break, I just grab the leash and take my, my dog to the park and just walk or pick up my kettlebell and just swing it for 10, 15 minutes or just sit on the couch and stare at the wall. Like meditation without calling it meditation mm-hmm. is really important for me. Um, like traveling, like driving. Sometimes I'll drive hours when I'm going, you know, whatever to, to home to visit my family. And I won't even turn on the radio and I won't even realize it because it's, I'm defragmenting my brain. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm going to sit down and meditate now. Let me open my meditation app and let me, let me do the meditation. It's just sit down and just sit, <laughs> you know, just sit still mm-hmm. for five mm-hmm. to 10 minutes or take a walk in nature and just, 
soak it up, listen to the leaves and, or just watch my dog have so much fun peeing on everything, <laughs> you know? So that's the only way I can answer that. Cause I don't, I don't have hobbies, um, because I know a hobby will turn into an obsession. And I don't want that. Yeah. It's part of your personality. Yeah. That's great. There's a book I was reading a while ago and the guy was talking about like mini Sabbaths that you can take. You're mm. standing in line at the bank. You're waiting. We're yep. always waiting and feel this pressure to take your phone out, to do, to be constantly doing something. And it's like, no, take advantage of that. When you feel inconvenienced, here's an opportunity to stop and to breathe yep. and to just, to just be and, um, and see those as blessings um so that when it's time to work you you're focused yeah i don't yeah, i don't need a vacation like that's when i feel like when someone says they need a vacation like then that means your life isn't right something's not right yeah, i don't because, like the vacation <laughs> yeah what are you taking a break from you should be enjoying what you're doing yeah yeah to a yeah. point where you don't want to not do it <laughs> you know like <laughs> Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a workaholic mindset that's unhealthy, but for me, it's just, this is fun. Tuning drums is fun. Um, recording, you know, playing, practicing on a practice pad for a half hour every day is fun. Yeah. I don't, I don't need a break from that. Yeah. <laughs> if I need a break from anything, it's all the distractions that don't allow me to do the, the music making. I'm with you, man. There's times I go on vacation and, and in, in like, in my suitcase, I've got a pair of sticks and a practice pad. <laughs> Yeah, you have to. You have to. My wife's like, "What? What are we doing?" Like, because, um, Mike, I this is this is great, man. I have three pages of stuff that we did not even hardly. <laughs> well, so I'm happy I, to come on and I, ramble I, on anytime. I, blame, I really hope that we can make this Music City Drum Show happen. Yeah, and absolutely. in some capacity, and uh, we connect in person. Um, but I, I, I appreciate uh, you taking the time and the stuff that you're putting out, the creativity, the inspiration that you continue to uh, put out there for, for so many of us and, and stuff. Uh, it's been really great to, to talk to you, man, in person. My pleasure. Anytime. Awesome, man. Well, I'll let you go and I'll be in touch. But, man, have a, have a great rest of your weekend and good weekend. You too. All right. Talk soon. See ya. Bye-bye. So there you go, my conversation with Mike Dawson. As I mentioned in the episode, if you want to find out some more background or some details in Mike's history, you can check out Discussions in Percussion, that podcast, as well as The Unstarving Musician, which were a couple podcasts I was unfamiliar with, but was real excited to discover them when preparing to speak with Mike. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Andrew Atkinson, a New York City-based jazz and fusion drummer who's also been involved in musicals. It's hard for me to believe, but we are coming upon episode 300, and Zach and I have got some exciting things planned for that. I hope that you'll stay with us and you'll check out that episode and all the episodes that we have leading up to that. It should be a lot of fun and informative. But for now, stay safe, stay positive. Uh, we appreciate everyone listening and everyone's support. And I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.